0: Um, please turn in your Bibles to 1st Thessalonians 2, 1st Thessalonians chapter 2, 2nd Thessalonians, my bad. The Word of God reads, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter concerning, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may not believe so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in in unrighteousness but we are always to give thanks to God for you brothers Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And that is the reading of God's word. Let us pray briefly. Father, we commit the reading of the word and the explanations of it. Please give us wisdom, insight, illumination, and help me to be clear exposing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Can God purposely, intentionally, willingly deceive a person? If, you, if we were handing out a quiz, theology quiz, and we would ask you, can God lie, deceive a person? What would you answer? No. Somebody said yes. Balaam's words. Remember Balaam, the false prophet? Who spoke to Balak, numbers 23:19? God is not a man that he should lie." Paul wrote, Titus 1:2, "God cannot lie." The writer to the Hebrews in 6:18 wrote, "It is impossible for God to lie." Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2:22, that in Jesus there was no deceit in his mouth. John the Apostle records the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, saying, I am the truth. And again, John the Apostle records the prayer of Jesus, calling the Spirit of God in John 14 and John 17, the Spirit of truth. So, no, how can God deceive or lie? But then Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians two eleven, God sends them a strong delusion literally god sends them a great error so that they may believe what is false i love tensions in the bible i love them because they pull and make us study and consider what is the text saying and it forces us to consider the context show you a secret before I explain to you the context. I have always shun preaching eschatology. Revelation, Romans 9-11, 2 Thessalonians, I have never wanted to preach this letter because of the passage we just read. And in God's omniscience and wise sense of humor, I'll have to quickly tell you the context of these words. What is the context of God saying in the passage, He sends them a strong delusion. The context is eschatology. There is an eschatological context. What is eschatology? The study of the last things. Things that pertain to the end of the world, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. And that is the context of those words. And the first point is that there is, or there was among the Thessalonians, an incorrect teaching regarding realized eschatology. And what on planet earth is that the Thessalonians had people teaching that Christ had already come, and that the new stage of things was already here. And therefore, they were actually doing some things that Paul rebuked. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Christ has not returned. By the way... We live in the day of the Internet. There are hyper-preterists today. And hyper-preterism has good Christians teaching that, which is an error, namely that Christ has returned already. No, he hasn't. Some people in, Thessalonian, in, in Thessalonica became arrogant and lazy about that. That's why in chapter 3, Paul has to prescribe, if anyone does not work... Let him not eat. The context of those words is that those who were teaching, Christ has already returned. We're already living the, living the last days. Therefore, why bother working? I have that temptation also when I, I'm going now to a dentist to check on a root canal and suffering pain. And I keep saying, but I'm 61 almost. I'm, going about to, I'm about to die. And Christ is coming. Why do I need to fix this tooth? Well, I have to fix the tooth. They were saying, why work? Why bother with this life if the end is at hand? And Paul says, no, if you don't work, don't give them anything. They are lazy, don't put them in the benevolence list. Don't say, oh, let's let's give you a handout because things are tough and you don't want to work. Sorry, we're not going to help you if you don't want to work. If you want to eat, go get a job. That's the context of those words. And Paul is telling them the coming of Christ is not imminent. What does that mean? The coming of Christ will not happen as sometimes we think. Oh, it will happen when we're not expecting it. Well, Jesus said that. Jesus said the people of the world will not be expecting it. They will be getting married, buying, selling, doing things, living their life, and the end will come. But Paul says, yes, but some things need to happen before Christ comes. And he says it in the text. He says, it will not happen before the apostasy, the great apostasy, the great departure from faith comes. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians before Christ comes, there's going to be a major departure from the truth. You may say, well, we're living those days. Perhaps we are. The amount of heresies and of... of, preposterous things that are taught in churches and are believed and written in books is amazing. But Paul says, this is major. This is such a great apostasy that also another event will happen. The man of sin will appear. That man of sin that Paul says will come by the direct work of Satan, permitted by God, Send to the world to do great signs and wonders. That man of sin who is elsewhere called the Antichrist. But Paul says, but there is something or someone restraining that. Restraining what? Restraining the great apostasy and restraining that this Antichrist may appear. So the question is and who is this man of sin and who is the restrainer Some people say well the Antichrist already came it was Nero the emperor or it was Diocletian another emperor that was a great persecutor of the Christian church or it was the Roman empire in general because they indeed taught that the emperor was god and took his seed as God. So that already happened. Well, there is a problem. Somebody wrote in the Bible, in the New Testament, later than this. John, in his, in his first epistle. And at the end of the first century, John writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. In century one, John said, it is the last hour. So this thing is going for a long time now. So oh, the last days now that Israel and Palestine are having this issue with Hamas. No, no, no. 2,000 years ago, John wrote, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So if it was Nero, when John wrote this, Nero was dead. So Nero could have not been the Antichrist. I believe the Antichrist is a future figure. Honestly, that's what I believe. It's a person that will rise in the language of Paul by the work of Satan and will come with great signs and wonders and powers. But somebody is restraining that. Or something is restraining that. Who is that restraining? Nana is translating, and I said Nana translate it as translated as quien lo detiene. Who is the one who's restraining the appearance of the Antichrist? Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, (laughs) what a shame. Because they knew Paul didn't explain it well. So they knew, but I don't know, and I cannot tell you who it is. What I can tell you is the theories that are circulating about who that restrainer can be. Some people say that restrainer is the government, is human government in general. Because Romans 13 teaches that the civil authorities are put in place to restrain evil. And as long as we have human governments in place, that Antichrist will not appear until one day that God will let loose on all authority and the world will run into anarchy and this worldly figure will appear. That makes sense. Others say, no, no, no. The text says he. It's a masculine figure. So we believe it is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, is turning down the gates of Hades. Remember Jesus' words? The gates of Hades will not prevail against the advancing of the church. Matthew 18. That's the Holy Spirit. And as long as the Holy Spirit is on earth advancing the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, that Antichrist will not appear. Now there will be a day... When the day of visitation of God's gracious dealings with mankind, sending them preachers and sending them the call of the gospel, will stop, 1 Peter two twelve. When that happens, the antichrist will rise. That makes sense, but I don't know. It could be either or. People say, "Oh, that's the secret rapture. The church will be taken seven years before the end." and the Holy Spirit will leave, and the Antichrist will come. Let me tell you why I have a problem with the secret rapture seven years before the end. Paul is talking in this passage, and we read it together, about three things. The coming of Christ, our gathering together with Him, and the day of the Lord, together. There's no seven years in the passage. So if these things are together... The hermeneutical pyrotechnics a person needs to do to have a seven-year pre-tribulation rapture, I don't buy. There's too much math and too much explanation and too much circling and somersaults that you need to really take to say, oh, well, the coming of Christ, yes, and our gathering together with Him seven years before the appearance of Christ. It's not in the text, guys. So... I don't believe there is a secret rapture. I believe it is all together. Christ will come. We will be transformed. The dead, of Christ will ri- the dead in Christ will rise first. And we will meet together with the Lord in the air. Now, before that, Paul says, the apostasy must come and the man of sin must appear. Now, I have to reel back because this sermon is not about eschatology. It is about Can God deceive a person? That's the topic. I just happen to deal with the context. Is God able to lie to a person? Well, God does not lie. But yes, God can deceive a person. Verses 9 through 12, we just read, read, and I'll read them again. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. The text says it. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. God sends it. How? (laughs) By the activity of Satan. So you have in your confession that God is not the author of evil, but God ordained evil. There you go. It's not an invention. It's not that two guys sitting in a chair decided, let's write the confession this way. The Bible is full of that type of information. Yes, it is impossible for God to lie, but it is possible for God to deceive people in judgment. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. There is an illustration of that in Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. appears in 1 Kings 22. In 1 Kings 22, we have the case of an assembly in heaven of spirits. Two kings, the kings of the north and the king of the king of the north and, and, the, and of the south, Jehoshaphat, a righteous king, and Acab, a wicked king, they make an alliance to fight the enemies of God. And the prophet Micaiah is sent to them and he tells them of a holy meeting a holy assembly that happened in the celestial courtroom. And it reads like that. Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. Do you remember Jesus' passage in Matthew 25? Righteous on the, on the right, wicked on the left is a Hebraism. For the Hebrews, for the Middle Easterners, the right hand is a good hand. The left hand is a bad one. You use the right hand to greet people, to work, to fight in battle. You use the left hand for hygienic purposes before they had invented invented toilet paper. I'm not being vulgar. I'm telling you as it is. It still happens today in certain countries. So the left hand is the bad hand. It's the wicked, filthy hand. The right hand is the good one. Parable of the sheep and goats in this passage illustrating something happening in heaven. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one and said one thing, when one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, That is God. You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these your prophets. This is now Micaiah telling Ahab. The Lord has declared disaster for you. I think the passage is self-explanatory. A demon, a lying spirit, and Satan is the father of lies, came and said to God, I can do that dirty job for you. And God said, go. God gave permission to a demon And also decreed the success of the demon deceiving Ahab and his prophets. That is the God we worship. That may not be the God of the nice books in Sunday school with the nice cartoon figurines. May not be the nice God of churches that preach health and wealth and prosperity. But that is the God of 1 Kings 22. God sent a demon and gave permission to deceive Ahab. Because God had declared the destruction and the judgment of the house of Ahab. Why would God do that? Why would God send demonic powers to deceive people? The text says it explicitly. Explicitly, you don't need a preacher to read to you verse 12. In order that all may be condemned, who is at all, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is the purpose. And here's the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's a tension that I cannot explain. But the Bible takes it for granted and presents it. So that they might believe what is false. That is intentional. God sends the demonic deceiving powers so that they may believe what is false. God's purpose God is intentional in what it says, so that they may be condemned. Ouch! But isn't God a God of love? Yes, He is. But this passage says that He sends them demonic, deceiving signs that they may be condemned. Why? Because they did not love the truth, but they took pleasure in unrighteousness. And that's where it stops being intentional and becomes directional so that they get what they want. People don't go to hell or don't go into condemnation because God willed to send them there. People choose to not love the truth and people take pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that doesn't require anybody to explain it to you. That when we sin, it's pleasurable, isn't it? That's the challenge of raising children and young people, isn't it? I keep telling my wife, I can't alcohol. Don't get me wrong, I like a, look like a sweet port of wine because it's sweet. And I may like a good wine with a piece of meat to help me swallow. I do enjoy it. But I don't understand alcohol. But I know one thing about alcohol. It must be awesome. If you're Hispanic, you know the phrase, Oye Vierne, el cuerpo lo sabe. You know that phrase, right? Hoy se bebe. Sorry if you're uh, 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 English-speaking and cannot understand me. That joy for the weekend, because today's Friday, and the body knows it, because today we drink. That must be pleasurable. I may not get it, but it cannot be painful. Painful is going to the dentist and get a root canal. That I'm not doing out of will. Well, it's Friday, yeah. The dentist guy is gonna mess up my molar there, and I'm gonna come in pain home with half the face numbed. Awesome, no. Because wickedness gives pleasure, and the text says God sends them a deluding power because they don't love the truth. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear things in church. They don't want to hear about God, but they want to take pleasure in wickedness. God chooses to save. Man chooses wickedness. That's the deal with choosing. And it is scary, the thought of facing God's hardening a person, because God does that. God hardens people. God hardened Pharaoh. He hardened his heart at the beginning. And then God said, okay, Moses, go. I will harden his heart even more. He will not listen to you. Why? Because I want to show my power in Egypt. And I want to judge them. That is God. But that is not attractive. Sorry. In Romans 1. Paul delivers people to a reprobate mind, to do things even against nature. They want to teach that I'm born that way. To be honest, I don't know if you're born that way. I'm not a geneticist. I know one thing. It is against nature. Because to have babies, you need to have heterosexual sex. If you're born or not, I don't know. Luis Hernandez is diabetic. If he had a gene that predisposed him to that, I don't know either. But he cannot have sugar. End. That's a story for me. I'm not going to argue things that I do not know. But the Bible says these things are the result of a reprobate mind. And now, what is sinful and evil is for me to say what I'm saying. That's where we are. You know what is that? A reprobate-hardened mind mind. Romans 1 says in our text God sends them a deluding power to deceive them with what? With signs and wonders. Let me tell you a text that scares the wits out of me. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. On that day Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, in your name, not in the name of Allah, not in the name of Buddha, not in the name of the God of Scientology, Lord, Lord, Kurie, Kurie, in your name, we made miracles. In your name, We cast out demons. And in your name, we prophesied. And I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When I think, oh, I've been preaching the gospel for about 40 years, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow, well, I must count for something because I, I was not living in fornication like my friends. I was not living in drunkenness. I've never I may be that, but Lord, Lord, I preached. I preached in Cornerstone. I was reformed. I try to preach the truth. My only hope, and I hope yours is, is Jesus Christ, His blood, and His righteousness. If you have hope in anything else, in things you've seen, in things you've heard, in miracles God has done for you, let me tell you that's shaky, dangerous ground. Because God sends those things to those He he wants to perish. That scares the wits out of me. I don't know about you. Do you have experiences? I don't go there. I've heard experiences from Roman Catholics, from Seventh-day Adventists, from Mormons, from Muslims, from all kinds of people, and I don't go there because I don't know. Who am I to get into, to meddle in your experiences? (laughs) But be careful, because God does not delight in unrighteousness. It's like the old Pentecostal joke. Some people speak in tongues. (laughs) But they cannot control their tongue in English or Spanish. You can speak angelic languages. But if your tongue is not tamed. Then I don't care. To the law and to the testimony. It's a scary passage. (laughs) But there is a contrasting promise. Very encouraging, wonderful, contrasting promise in verse 13. But but when there is a however a but pero in scripture take courage there comes a change in thought but we are always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the lord because god chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and believe in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. And I love it that the promise is established on God's own will. It has nothing to do with us, but now God takes His sovereignty and directs it to those who are beloved, because He loves them, to those who have hope, because He gives them hope. And God's choice is sovereign. That's what we call free election. It says you are beloved by the Lord. You're beloved. It's not that you did something that because you have a good heart. God was moved towards you. Mm-mm. He loved you. If you are in Christ. And by the way, if you are not, come. And it's the same to you. You are beloved by by God, free election in love according to the pure affection of his will. And then we see God's intention to salvation. He chose you to be saved. And he chose you to obtain glory. And that is predestination. I don't think this is good exegesis, but it's fun to say it. The word predestination is it comes from the word horizon. Pro-horizo. So it's like God traced a horizon for you beforehand. And that horizon God traced you, that goal, that end He marked for you is to be saved and to obtain the glory of Christ. Because God did it sovereignly. And then the text shows God's agent. He did that through the Holy Spirit, through sanctification by the Spirit in the truth. Meaning we need the Word for that. Pastor Freddie and I were talking when we were praying in the little room before, and we also mentioned it on Tuesday in the men's meeting. The truth, the Scripture, God's revealed truth, is a means for two things. It's a means to salvation, People will not come to the Lord unless we explain to them, yeah, you need to come to Christ, you need to believe, you need to be saved because you are born a sinner and destitute from God's glory. And there's only one way to get back with God, through the cross. He sent His Son to save sinners. How fast, how slow, how detailed, how winsomely you explain that, I don't care, but people need to hear that. Now, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, you need the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed from the moment you believe. But you need the Word. That's why we gather in church. That's why we gather and spend the majority of our time reading and preaching the Word, and explaining the Word, and teaching the Word. That's why parents are commanded to raise their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, because it is the Word what sanctifies you. And may I say with all humility, and I hope I'm not being legalistic, something we spoke among the men. If you come to church 20 times a year, don't expect that magically one day you'll zap. You'll be zapped, and you'll be grown and strong and firm in your faith. God doesn't operate that way. God operates little by little through being exposed to the truth, explained, heard, read, taught. That's the way we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And the conclusion is, (laughs) verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good deed and work. And that's how Paul wraps up eschatology eschatology doesn't end in eschatology eschatology is not are you a millennialist a pre post are you pre rapture are you post rapture i don't give a squat about those things i'll tell you what i am if you want to know i think i hinted it but eschatology doesn't end there eschatology ends in the hope that God has prepared and ordained and established for those who are His Beloved. The point of eschatology is to remind us because this is not the end, because this is not all, because the glory of Christ awaits us, then God will confirm you and establish you in every good work and word. Be filled with good works. Be filled with hope. Be filled with comfort. But, but I am depressed. I can't. Hey, me too. Bring the mind to the Bible. When the mind is down and dark at 3 a.m. in the morning, and you do not know what is the purpose of life, then you remember the purpose of life is that God wants to unite all things around Christ. And extol and exalt His Son. And guess who will be in the stadium clapping? <laughs> you, if you believe. Ain't it great when you go to an NBA game, if you like that? And there is a great play, even me, who, who I'm not a Heat fan. But when they do, you're there sitting, and there is a good play. You can't help but stand and say, Wow! Imagine that feeling in eternity, looking at Christ being exalted. The whole planet filled with righteousness and with the glory of God. The will of God being done on earth as it is done in heaven. And there you are in renewed bodies and minds and souls, glorified, free from sin, clapping for Jesus. If they wouldn't change our bodies, we would get a heart attack. If we would see what awaits us, our minds today would be broken. If God says, let me show you three seconds of heaven. Put the thing there. One, two, three, now. And you saw heaven there. When you come back, you're crazy. Your family says, what on earth happened to dad or to mom or to Johnny or to Susie? Your mind gets broken. We cannot handle it. But one day we will. For all eternity. And that is Paul's point. He loved us. He gave us eternal comfort. But I don't feel any comfort this side of eternity. I know. I know. But there's one that is eternal. Every tear wiped. Every clamor. Every pain. Every grief removed. Because God gave us eternal comfort. And he also gave us a good hope. You know what holds me many times when my atheistic, incredulous, engineering brain goes blank and unbelieving? I'll tell you what holds me. Jesus said, my father's house, there are many dwelling places and I'm going to prepare one for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. That holds me. Jesus, the one who went to the cross for affirming what he affirmed, the one who for claiming being God, was accused by the Jews before Rome and ended up dying. Jesus, the man who could not be accused of any sin, and Peter who lived with him said, There was no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. 30 years later after, Peter is writing and he's reminiscing on on his three years and a half with Jesus. and says, never, ever, ever he sinned. Never, ever, ever he lied. And Jesus says, if it would have not been so, I would have told you. And I say, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Whatever chemical is running through my brain now, I don't care. Jesus said, there's a place for me. That's the point of eschatology. May he comfort your hearts. May he establish them in good works. And I end up with a promise of Isaiah 3.10. I love it. You now, Isaiah 3.10 says? While Isaiah is preaching judgment to Israel, he says, tell the righteous that it will go well with them. They will eat of the fruit of their labors. Tell them. Now comes Christmas. I'm not a Christmas guy. It used to be Saturnalia. It used to be all of these pagan celebrations that were Christianized by a pope. So I'm not a, Christian, a Christmas guy. I love the lights and the music. Don't get me wrong. But it's a good time to remember Jesus came and was born And was born to die. That we may have hope. That we may say to one another. It will go well. Because God who loved us has promised it. Amen. Father use your word. And apply it according to our need. Where we are. And be glorified. Comfort your people. Encourage them. Save anyone who may not know you. Sanctify us all. In Jesus' name, amen.